You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What the doctor say? We have ever-increasing gun violence going on. Without further delay, I want to bring you Dr. K, who has been making the topic of gun violence a topic on her platform, myuzema.org. She is an anesthesiologist in the DMV, and we are so happy that she brought this to us. And we've got some special guests as well, Dr. K. We sure do, Tamara G. And thank you so much for hosting with me. We've had an exciting time coming up with great topics that our audience find relevant and important. And we are finding that gun violence, of course, is on the rise in America. And I could not think of two better men to bring together two of my esteemed colleagues that I just want to open the floor to and talk about gun violence and also who they are. Let me just start with uh, Dr. Elliot Jesse. His resume is probably just as long as Dr. Ron Bailey, but I'll start with Dr. Elliot Jesse. And he is hails in from New Orleans. He is an Xavier graduate. A shout out to the HBCUs. We're going to have this battle again, <laughs> Dr. Bailey. I always get you somebody with an HBCU background. <laughs> and then we have, uh, he went to Tulane for medical school. He is also a proud member of our United States military. He is a captain in the United States Navy. We will let him expound on that because uh, not being in the military myself, I want him to have all uh, tell us all the accolades, but he is part of our United States Navy, and we are so proud of him and for what he's done for our nation. He's served numerous tours, and I won't give how many, but Dr. Jesse has definitely served his country well. He continues to be one of our associate professors of surgery at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. He is also a trauma surgeon for shock trauma in Baltimore, since there is no other person I could think of to bring to the stage tonight. Uh, He has done a fellowship also in trauma surgery at Shock Trauma in Baltimore, Maryland. He's also one of our esteemed professors of surgery and the director of the intensive care unit at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Bethesda Navy as well is also what is combined as. I think he also has these letters called MBA. So I don't know where he gets the time to start a business or work his business, but medicine is his business. Teaching is his business. I have worked side by side with him on the opposite, what I say, the blue curtain. And I will tell you, he is a very passionate educator, very passionate surgeon. And so I thank you for joining me tonight. And I paired you up with somebody that's in your state and in your city. That is none other than the first black chairman of psychiatry at LSU Health Science Center, which you know well, Dr. Jesse. So uh, he is coming to us from Beaumont, longtime forensic psychiatrist over 30 years. He's an author, and he has written a tell-all, a, a very much-needed book called At Gunpoint. He is a leading expert in gun violence and gun violence prevention. And so we both are, just want to thank you for coming here and being on this platform this evening. So, Dr. Jesse, I want to start with you. <laughs> you know, first of all, tell me about Xavier, because I did not apply to Xavier. All of my friends in Houston, I'm sure Dr. Bailey remembers, all of our friends wanted to go to Dillon and Xavier. And we said, no, we're going to the ATL, Shawty. <laughs> <laughs> first, thank you for having me on this platform and for thinking of me. And thank you for that, that introduction. Much appreciated. Xavier, yeah, I believe black and gold. I kind of made my aunt upset when I chose Xavier because she went to Dillard. So there's a little hostility there for a little while. The reason I chose Xavier is because I felt it was a, you know, it was an HBCU, which was important. And 
at the time, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And at the time it was, and I think still is, first in the nation in putting African-Americans into medical school, dental school, so on and so forth. And it was uh, being from Louisiana right in my backyard. So I could not pass up the opportunity. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over a thousand times. And Dr. Bailey is a Morehouse man. (laughs) So he has a little bit to say about that as well. And how did you choose Morehouse? Uh, Absolutely. Like Dr. Jesse, I love my undergrad. I have my 82 to 86 time period in Atlanta. Uh, As Dr. K points out, it was the ATL. Um, So one of my kids there, I really enjoyed it. I'd say that for me, you know, college is uh, a coming out period for all of us, black and brown. And the reality is uh, Morehouse College stands singular, just like Xavier does, and being the only black Catholic uh, undergrad in the country. Uh, Morehouse is the only uh, all-black, all-male undergrad in the country. And they really, I think, put a lot into that. I mean, the reality is it was a place where you could be an individual and not be black or male, because everybody was black or male. Every moment of my life before that, every moment after that, being black or male for other people always meant a whole lot. And very often uh, it colored so much of who you were and what you said and what you did. If you played football, if you went out for the band, if you were at the mall downtown, what have you. So to have that one experience of being able to be viewed truly, I think just by my uh, work product, was monumentally important. And my friends and I often kind of speak about that even now as we have all of the perturbations of, of life and the struggles that very often occur if you're in a minority in our society. So college means a lot. Uh, it means a lot to all of us. And more else certainly uh, meant a lot to me. And I'm surprised, too, that, you know, with these two black males that are on with us, Dr. Kate, that both of them chose a medical degree to go into when there's so many other facets that you could have gone into in so many professions. Dr. Jesse, were you always into medicine? Were you always into science and math and that type of thing, that STEM that we always talk about now? I think I was definitely always into science. My mother was a eighth grade math teacher my whole life. So I think if I didn't go into something science-based, I would have been in permanent timeout or, you know, got a permanent spanking, whichever, whichever we're doing nowadays. But I was always into sciences. And I think I got more drawn into sort of the medical aspect as I got sort of older, more towards the tail end of high school. It was more of a, what is the best thing where I can marry science and service to, to people? And I didn't have any, there were no doctors in my family, or nobody, no, no nurses, or nobody with a medical degree or anything close to it. So for me, you know, it was something that I explored. And then, you know, once you get to Xavier, you know, you get the peer pressure because everybody's coming to Xavier. And, you know, as you know, sometimes you go to undergrad and you go in with A and you come out with B. But I think Xavier tended to attract a lot of people that wanted to go into medicine. And so, as you know, we sort of have or had like a hive mentality. So even if you decided maybe that's not your, your route or you're having a bad day, people still pushed you and encouraged you to continue on and to have the same opportunities or explore new opportunities to encourage you to do, you know, various programs. So I think, you know, sort of that's where, that's where it, uh, it started. And my sixth grade teacher told me I was going to be a doctor. And if I didn't, I also felt like I was going to disappoint her. So it was a setup from the beginning. And what about you, Dr. Bailey? How did you choose medicine over, you know, many professions that you could have chosen in Morehouse? Well, I think similarly, um, my entire life, like Elliot, I mean, my parents were school teachers as well. You want to make good grades and do good school and, and a big focus, I think, on education. And my hometown of Beaumont, Texas, as, uh, as Dr. K mentioned. But for me, I, I think for every moment of my life, I want to be a doctor. I can't say ever thinking about what I do anything different. Some kind of tradition, I went straight through high school, college, med school, and the whole nine yards. 
I can say, though, that some of the things that happened, getting back to the undergrad discussion, that were very monumentally important, I think, in my career then and now, was at Morehouse, they would actually have what they call the top 10. So whenever there was an exam, they'd post the grades, you know, the next day they were graded outside the uh, professor's uh, office, what have you. And everybody's grade was listed by the social security number for confidentiality. But if you were in the top 10, they list your name. And I often think that that was one of the aspects of uh, my experience there at HBCU, where people really wanted to go into medicine. Morehouse was taking 500 a year by 2,000 total, and about 150 would go into pre-med, biology. And it was very competitive, but it was a very positive competition. Once I got to med school, where I learned more about people being cutthroat and trying to be competitive and try to hurt you or hurt your scores or whatever. And uh, when I was in undergrad, uh, folks wanted to uh, admire the people who were at the top of the list and wanted to be at the top of that list. So I think that these discussions are so important. But me by young people, I think now, need that level of positive competition. Somebody to push them and say, go to med school, you know, go to law school, go to grad school, or you can do it. I think people need mentorship and they need role models. And these are things that I think Morehouse provided for me. That's important in terms of our opening because we've come together to talk about gun violence. And one of the key elements about uh, gun violence prevention, if you will, and I think both of you all can appreciate this, you, Dr. Jesse, from the patients that you've taken care of, the gun violence that you've seen in urban cities like Baltimore, I've seen that as well in, in Cook County, Chicago. And then you, Dr. Bailey, in terms of what you treat in terms of young black men in distress from depression, the bipolar and the mental aspects of it. But the upfront work of having young black men think positively about themselves, believe that they can do anything, which is what both you are testifying to, and that you have to start to plant that those words in there. I, I think that uh, I did not come from a very affluent area, the first in the family to go to medical school, and you all are saying as well, even though we had educated parents, again, we by no means uh, had an easy road, but somehow or another, teachers and community people all seem to be able to propel us to these careers. So, Dr. Jesse, I want to ask you, I'm going to open up the floor so that we don't have too much commentary, and I want you to just talk about, you know, your reflections of gun violence in terms of shaping that conversation. Like, if someone were to ask you right now your thoughts on, I know that sounds like a large question, but you are a trauma surgeon, and you see that part of gun violence that we all cannot appreciate if we're not in the operating room. So, can you describe you know, even from a um, practical sense, what you experience, and then also philosophically, what you feel about gun violence. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes, you know, without saying that there's a gun problem in this country. Whether where you fall or where you sit on Second Amendment rights, there's a problem. And there are, A, too many guns readily available, and there are guns that aren't intent to hunt animals, they are intend to kill people. That's a big difference. When I was in medical school, you would see, you know, at Charity Hospital uh, doing your rotations, you know, gun violence is not new in the country. It, it's always been an issue, but, you know, you would see lower velocity rounds or, or less high powered weapons, which tend to do a little bit less damage depending on what body part they injure. And then, you know, my entire residency you know, I did residency at uh, Walter Reed when it was called the National Military Medical Center. So I took care of essentially every, you know, wounded Marine from the conflict. And then when we merged a lot of war injured and then being deployed, you see a lot of higher velocity weaponry. And now you're starting to see that same high velocity weaponry on the streets. 
And so, you know, in any call shift, when I'm working up in Baltimore, shock trauma, you can see anywhere from one to six, seven, you know, gunshots a night, easy. And that's nothing because my colleagues in Chicago probably see more than that. And so the question becomes, you know, somebody is shot and they show up in my trauma bay alive, you know, there's a high probability that we can we can save them. But I sort mm-hmm. of look at that as that's the effect, right? That's my job. That's what I do. But I think the problem is we have to figure out what's the actual cause. Like, why are people either mass shootings and, you know, with mental health doing things that they shouldn't be doing? Or, you know, why are these inner city youths fighting over a corner that they don't own anyway and shooting each other up because of it? Like, what, what is the root cause of that? And I think a lot of it is sort of socioeconomic and opportunity. If you grow up in a place where you get the imprint and when you're young, this is all that I have. This is my only way. This is all that I have around me. Then I sort of feel like that becomes an influence upon you. Now, some people will make it out of that because they have somebody motivating them to say, this is not your path. This shouldn't be your path. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do any of these things that may be associated with gun violence. There's a better way through education, through opportunities, go to this after school, do all these things. But there's a certain percentage of people that don't have that. And so I think to improve gun violence outside of the mass shootings and, and those things that happen, I think the things that I see are the, the sort of inner city conflicts and you know things like that. And I think it's a socioeconomic thing. We have to fix the socioeconomic opportunities first. And then I also think, you know, some of these states that are proposing these good guys with a gun, take out the bad guys with a gun. You and I both Mm -hmm. know that. Texas. I've taken care of a lot of, you know, people who got assaults, assaults, right? Like beat up in a bar fight. You know, somebody says one thing, somebody says something else. There's alcohol involved. You know, people are getting shot. I think if you just introduce these weapons and concealed carries, I think people's natural ability is, you know, we may get into the same conflict, but I might not fight you because now I have a gun. You might have a gun. I need to protect myself. And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to shoot you, miss, kill two people in the process, injure three others and not even hit the target that I was going after. Mm -hmm. And it's not even concealed, by the way. Florida is talking about doing open carry and so is Texas. Exactly. Texas. So we're uh-huh. truly at the wild, wild west. Truly at Correct. the wild west. So then that, that's where Dr. Bailey comes in because Dr. Bailey, it seems like there, there really is no rhyme or reason. And as a doctor of psychiatry, your job is to try to, you know, figure out from people, why do they do the things they do? Can you explain it? Excuse me. So, oh, I think he dropped out. Okay. <laughs> well, and I wanted to ask this question of um, Dr. Jesse, because you mm-hmm. said that, you know, at any given shift that you work between one and six, gunshots a night and that you know your job obviously is to save them and and some you do and some you don't how is that on the psyche of someone like you you know you're a doctor and you are meant to save people but sometimes the damage is just so bad and when you find out the reasons behind why they got shot you're just like come on why why are we doing this so I just want to know how does it affect your psyche as the person who's trying to help save these victims. I would be lying if if I say that it didn't. You know, there's a sort of a saying amongst all, mm-hmm. you know, trauma surgeons especially and surgeons in general that we all carry our, our own little personal graveyard of people that we couldn't save. 
I think in the moment, you don't think about it. Like if you think this kid's 15, this kid's 16, he's somebody's brother or sister, you know, uncle, I think you sort of lose focus. And so for me, I just focus on the situation at hand. I do my best Mm -hmm. where I think it really affects you sort of mentally and you have to learn how to compartmentalize it or put it somewhere, find a way to decompress, talk about it with somebody Mm -hmm. is, you know, I can't count the number of times when I have to go and tell a parent, a wife, a husband, somebody that, you know, they've lost despite my best efforts, despite modern medicine, you know, there's nothing we can do. And just hearing, especially when it's on repeat, you know, I had one, I mean, I'll never forget it. I had one mother who said, you know, that was my last son. And my previous two sons died the same way within the last two years. So, you know, here's a mother who is childless, directly related to gun violence in a two-year period. You know, and again, since you and I can be in a similar uh, situation in terms of trying to save a life and trauma, I mean, I remember going up the county thinking I left New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, went to Chicago to train at the Cook County, and what do I get? A 13-year-old shot within my first months of doing call. And I thought, you know, anesthesia is supposed to be about, oh, putting people to sleep, waking them up, yay, 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 high five. And now I'm I'm experiencing trauma in front of me. And yes, those screams after you have um, dropped a patient off or seeing people and passing people in hallways can be uh, traumatizing, uh, both for the practitioner and definitely experiencing that we feel for the family. Uh, So again, Dr. Bailey, where we were leaving, you know, this is a good segue in terms of psychiatric burden of gun violence. And I think that it's important as physicians, we have the skill set to compartmentalize, but we know as a community that they can be under siege. Um, And one community activist in Baltimore who's over ceasefire said, we don't experience post-traumatic stress because we're constantly within the stress of gun violence. We we don't get to say post. We are constantly living with trauma. And so I thought that was a pretty profound way of looking at it, that there are communities like Baltimore who say, this is a cycle for us. This is our everyday existence. This is not a post anything. Uh, so I'd like to welcome you and, and to talk to, to have you expound on these these uh, topics. All tremendous points. I thank you, Dr. K. I think uh, Elliot's points are, are, are so timely and, and I'd agree with them. I guess we saw on the last one first, this issue regarding whether you meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, if you're under chronic stress, has been an issue of contention, I think, within my profession for two or three decades. We actually have diagnosis of acute PTSD and chronic PTSD, and very often I think the uh, trajectory of both can be very different. Although you're right, we do call both PTSD, and there's certainly something to be said for when you have that level of exposure where you or somebody close to you, you know, certainly could have lost life or limb in a short period of time. So the reality is I think this issue of PTSD does matter. Individuals in, in settings where the risk are high, whether they're urban or not, I think do have not only higher risk, but somewhat all the highest risk, and it certainly I think does adversely impact how people think and feel and work and grow and live their lives. And it has a remarkably adverse impact on some communities, all too often, I think, uh, our community. It was kind of commenting on of these rates. Uh, I think you commented about Chicago as well. I like that when I do these shows, make the point to people that the rates are differential and it's important to know. The rates of homicide in America are, are, are pretty unchanged over the last two decades. They're about five or six per 100,000. Uh, about 20,000 suicides every year about 12 or 15,000 homicides, so almost twice as many suicides as homicides is another key point. But if it's six per 100,000, Chicago's at about 18 per 100,000, which is three times the national average. They get a lot of attention, 
often certain politicians on one side of the aisle talk about Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. But be aware that uh, New Orleans is about 84 per 100,000, or 14 times the national average. So the risks are high. They can be higher and highest in some areas, some jurisdictions. And that's why we spend so much time trying to find ways to counter that and, and undermine uh, the, the underbelly in many regards of many of the systemic factors that continue to promote gun violence and gun deaths in our society. I think you also mentioned in the U.L. this idea that one family, uh, somebody lost more than one uh, adult son. Uh, I'm in New Orleans for about a year, 13, 14 months. And we had a case more than five, six months ago where a lady lost all three of her sons in a 30-day period, two in one shooting and in a, a, another in a different shooting. You can't have a society, a civilized society, with those kinds, I think, of tragedies in an ongoing fashion. That affects not only that particular lady and her, and her family, but others along, along, I think, the corridor, her community, her street, her neighbors, her church, her job as well. So a lot, a lot really needs to be done to manage it. So I also mentioned, you know, the five things we, we, we address in my book, and Dr. K mentioned my book, one, again, as Elliot says, is just too many guns. So I think that the idea that we have 400 million guns in America and 350 million people is by itself, I think, objectionable. And we just have to get away from this mindset that everybody has to have a gun or you have gun for protection. Data does not argue that having guns very often means you're a lot more protective. In fact, many groups, especially black women, the data will argue are more at risk of dying due to gun violence. If they live in a home every day with a gun, they use that same gun to protect themselves. People don't like to hear that data, but that's what the empirical data actually says. We'll and say why is that, doctor? Well, Taylor. I think the reality is black women, unfortunately, are at the highest risk of domestic violence or IPV, partner violence, I think, in our society. All too often, most violence and most gun violence is interpersonal. We kill people that we know and who we're around. Whites kill more whites and blacks kill more blacks, although society implies that a lot of the killings are, are interracial. They really are not. So very often, if there's a conflict, and there's conflicts in your house and in your society, and in your home, people in the old days would manage it, I think, with their fists, and somebody would get punched in the nose, or unfortunately, other kinds of non-lethal violence, or kicking, or pushing, or hitting. But with such easy access to guns, and society very often has actually decreased many of the emotional and psychological barriers to using guns. We're so quick to want to end a regular conflict with a lethal death, rather than, you know, you punch me, I punch you, you pinch me, I pinch you, you know, only I'm going to kill you if I'm at a risk of, of dying. So many people reach out to a gun to shoot and kill somebody when they themselves were no risk of dying. The other person may, may have actually been unarmed, no type settings. So there's a lot to be said, and I think a lot for us to actually, from an educational standpoint, put across to ensure the likelihood that our communities can function and live safer, more civil lives. Let me ask you a quick question. So back to education, do you all do you think with your experience and volumes of experience with trauma that we should be introducing conflict resolution? in these urban centers or areas where you experience violence or socioeconomically depressed centers, should we be entering, let's say, third grade, fourth grade? I know when I grew up, we had to, to do classes like, you know, you, you, you were told to be polite, you were told to share. Uh, do you think that we are getting away from civility and so maybe we need to have some type of conflict resolution uh, so that from, from third grade to high school in these particular areas, we might can save somebody because they have the skill set to deal with life on life's terms. I think the the brother from uh, that that died who was in uh what was that the wire? What was his name? Do you remember oh, his name? Um, our dude. That was our dude, right? You know his name. It's killing me. Idris Elba played him. 
not Idris Elba played him, but he was played uh, opposite of him, and he was he just passed. He had Avon Barksdale, Michael, Michael, Will- Michael Williams, Michael Williams, Michael, right? Michael Williams, Michael Williams, right? May he rest in peace. But they, he just said, I need to learn how to, and he was from Baltimore, right? And he said, I need to learn how to deal with life on life's terms, and that's hard for some of us, particularly when you come from areas where you know you got so much coming at you. What, what do you think about that, Dr. Jesse? You know, I, I agree. I think we, and, and I think, again, I think, I don't think this is an inner city problem, per se. I think it is, it is an America problem, mm-hmm. right? The history of America, which is a great country, mm-hmm. you know, you start, you know, Americans don't like to be critical of America because that, that makes you less patriotic mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But everything America has been founded on has mm-hmm. been founded on violence, mm-hmm. right? The country is founded on violence. Mm-hmm. Everything, the whole thing, every it's all violence, right? And I think as a society, we tend to resolve all of our issues with some form of violence, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we can't just have a discussion. We mm-hmm. can't agree to disagree. Everything mm-hmm. is sort of a zero-sum game. I mm-hmm. win, you lose, period. Mm-hmm. Can't be any in-between. Mm-hmm. And so, because if there's compromise, mm-hmm. compromise is a dirty word. Compromise means you're weaker. Compromise means all these things. So I think, you know, yeah, if we introduced conflict resolution early in school, I think it may be taught in K through three just by default, or you have a social system that teaches you conflict resolution, but at some point it's lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a lot of the endpoints are violence. And then I think when you start adding things that sort of disconnect people and take us away from our interpersonal interactions, you know, you can interact with everybody in the world on social media and mm-hmm. somebody on the West Coast says something bad about you on the East Coast, then I don't have any, I can't look you in the eyes. I got Twitter fingers or Instagram mm-hmm. fingers and I can just say or do whatever I want. And now mm-hmm. there's a separation of consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. You can just do and say what you want. and There are no consequences. So in that aspect, I don't have to resolve anything because it never comes to a resolution. I make my own resolution. Mm-hmm. I can block you. I can ignore you. I can say what I want. And so, yeah, I think we, we've lost overall civility. Mm-hmm. That- there you go. I was about to say thank you so much for saying that, because mm-hmm. the fact that someone can say something about you and that prompts you to want to end their lives. That that to me makes absolutely no sense. If you're just tuning in, thank you so much. I'm Tamara G, co-host of this wonderful program we're having now, Gunpoint, We Need a Ceasefire. Of course, Dr. K is here. She has been making the topic of gun violence a topic of her platform, myuzema.org. We are joined by Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey. He is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Louisiana State University. And we also have Dr. Elliot Jesse, he is a trauma surgeon uh, in the Baltimore area, and both of them seeing <laughs> the effects of gun violence everyday life. Dr. Jesse, of course, in the emergency room, and Dr. Bailey, when he is having to treat the victims of this gun violence, whether it's family members or the person themselves, or, or to try to figure out where all of this is coming from. So we are just wanting to have this conversation today to see if we can come up with some solutions or you know, maybe we can get back to civility. There are people who get upset with you because they won't let you in traffic. Mm-hmm. Like you've got your signal light on and you're trying to merge into traffic and they literally 
go faster so that they won't have to let you in. And I'm thinking, what happened to just being kind to people? That's right. So what, you know, we have to learn, we learned some skills. And I think uh, you're right, Dr. Jesse, that uh, taking uh, the social media aspect uh, is is taking away some of our uh, human and civility. And Dr. Bailey, uh, I had the pleasure of speaking to someone on your team today. And that was Dr. Erica Rahu. I think that she brought up some some very interesting work that's going down going on at LSU, and that is that you have a trauma clinic that you have affixed to the emergency setting for when someone not only will be seen for by Dr. Jesse's team that will proceed to surgery, but postoperatively are part of their management care. You're thinking of an acute trauma intervention team. Is that what's going on at LSU? Absolutely. Uh, Tulane actually already has a grant for a gun violence prevention uh, network. Uh, we're pursuing the same, I think, at LSU. We share the University Medical Center Hospital, which is essentially the new charity. Charity was there, of course, for essentially a, decade, a century, if you will, before Katrina happened uh, 15 years ago. Ikarajo is one of my uh, young stars, uh, doing great work, a young psychologist. Mm-hmm. We call it trauma recovery. So the idea is that you walk into the emergency room with any kind of trauma-based circumstance. Somebody had a gunshot wound, a car wreck, child abuse, sexual assault. Got a big sexual assault center in New Orleans in the hospital. And, and uh, the trauma surgeon, you know, Elliot, for example, is taking them to the OR and kind of working with them to save their life acutely. And the psychiatrists are going to the waiting room to deal with the recovery psychologically of the folks who actually were, were nearby. And we're mm-hmm. actually impacted uh, just the same. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone who leads that process, it has a tremendous, I think, impact. Our struggle very often in getting grant funded is that the things we do take a long time to germinate and a long time to show the kind of benefit that occurs. But I think often in our community, as the show today points out, we realize the value and how essential it is. Because that 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 12-year-old, or 3-year-old who saw their relative in the car wreck or their uncle, you know, gunshot wound or their aunt, an a, a 80-year-old woman shot her up. Unfortunately, at a um, uh, graduation at Xavier yeah. about a month ago, that, that young child is impacted as well. I'll come back to an early point that two of you made that I think is so timely. I think Dr. K said it first, there should be some conflict resolution, and we should start it from the very beginning. I think Elliot said uh, elementary school, he's 100% right, and it should never stop. We find persons who are 13, 23, 33, 53, 53. 63, <laughs> not, not knowing how to act. I think uh, you make a very good point. Uh, when you make the argument that road rage is a classic issue of conflict resolution, I mentioned earlier, persons will respond, uh, excessive response. They want to kill you if you had a non-lethal transgression against them. You stepped on their foot, or you insulted them, or you disrespected them. And we see that again from young kids in school, the young adults, the older person. So everyone, we need a national campaign to address conflict resolution. We don't appreciate that many just don't get it. Maybe they didn't get it at church, or they didn't get it at home, or they didn't get it in the school, or at the YMCA. They didn't play little baseball like I did. And when you have a big conflict at the plate, and you run into the catcher, you know, that violent action happens, but folks don't get up and start fighting after the conflict at the plate. I played football my whole life. Some of the most violent blows in my life happened on the football field, but the guys, though, did have a second fight afterwards when the safety hits the running back running through the middle hole for a drunken touchdown or whatever. So people learn in sports, for example, mm-hmm. that that issue was within a certain context, but it doesn't lead to you being emotionally upset and you have to have a fight afterwards. All too often, many other people in our society don't get that message and they need to be trained. I strongly believe you're right, Dr. K. We need conflict resolution. It should start early and it should be continuous. Our society, I think, depends on it. But do you also find, Dr. Bailey, as a psychiatrist, and you know, not speaking about any patient in particular, that to me, it seems like people are so sensitive. Their feelings get hurt 
by just the small and and I say hurt and I'm using that because that's what makes them then turn around and you don't Mm -hmm. want to hurt somebody else they're just sensitive. I'm like, really? That's what you got upset about? Let that go and keep on. Yeah, I, I jump in and I tell you that the, the three issues that are relevant to me, and these are not the only three, but three that I like to address. We need ways to manage conflict, mission conflict resolution. Uh-huh. I think we also kind of address what's increasingly a growing level of inherent insecurity in many young people. Okay. They feel insecure. Okay. You step on their foot. They think that you've essentially cursed them out and, and, and doomed them to a life in a bad way. And the over-response occurs, I think, because they themselves read a whole lot more into what happened. I love your point about road rage. Road rage is the epitome example of somebody thinking, because I'm driving too fast or too slow, or I jumped in front of them, or the case may be, that I meant it, that I was intentional in my action, that somehow I knew who they were, that I did mm-hmm. it just, just because of them. And very often, none of that is in case. So you just turn from the left lane to the right because you're trying to get home to, to have dinner on time and you're uh, mm-hmm. XYZ. So I think the, the insecurity issue is huge, at least a large problem for us in many regards kind of going forward and trying to understand why persons are over-responding, I think, all too often. And the third and final point I make, and this has been insecure, I live in a society, I, I call it the, the Society of Cribs. It was a show called Cribs for some time. And folks who watch it on television, everybody else seemed to be very rich and, and, and very flamboyant, and I put very little work into it. On this podcast today, I to put a lot more work in, mm-hmm. in, in background effort into the times you get a chance to actually speak or benefit from it or earn income out of it or do the things that I think very often put you at, at the highest level of success. So I think we send out our adverse message mm-hmm. uh, in many regards, not just the media, whether it's the radio or television, it's in how people talk and what they think, that I think um, laying down some groundwork, paying your dues, or putting a lot of work and effort into developing your craft in, in, a, in a sincere way has routine value. People stop thinking that, then they move to quick options. A quick option to think that you can earn money very, very fast. Another quick option is you can use violence to get your way. I think that's a message we should actually disdain and argue against. I think there's a, a cre- uh, there is a critical need to figure out how to message gun violence prevention to this, gener- what they call themselves, Generation Z? Is that mm-hmm. <laughs> So just like, you know, Dr., both of you all as educators in medicine, you both have to figure out, and, and you've been doing what over, Dr. Jesse, over 20 years now? Mm-hmm. And Dr. Bailey, you're in the 30, right? 30 Every, years. Right. So we've, we've had to, you become, you know, accustomed to trying to change how you teach. And I'm sure that we all are experiencing as physician educators, a difference in the way our residents are presenting information to us. You know, before you had to know your patient's call, and now we're having students and residents have to pre- present uh, didn't bother to memorize the information because they can pull it up on a smartphone. You know, we do think that, and I'll say it uh, since no one, you know, and I'll be the person that says it, is that, you know, we have this kind of dumbing down as opposed to moving and elevating our brain and trying to stretch it in different ways. So that's happening en masse, whereby people don't want to retain certain information, certain skill set to be successful or to even just to be in what we call society. You know, when they lock you up, and Dr. Bailey is a forensic psychiatrist, uh, I might add, that when they lock you up and throw away the key, their claim is that you're not fit to be around other humans, correct? And they send you to prison telling you to go either think about it, think about why that, or they say you're not fit to be around humans, period, after you have killed somebody that Dr. Jesse's had to, you know, try to save. We got to get people to, to, to relearn, I think, normative, typical behavior. We just had a case in New Orleans this last week or two. Is it all on the news uh, each evening in the last 
week or so, there was a juvenile detention facility where uh, there was an escape and some young men got out and they harmed some people. And the whole discussion in the state is to, you know, reinstitutionalize them and incarcerate them and put them in a big prison with the adults, which is called Angola, blah, blah, blah. And Margaret has been, everybody has to be safe. I'll never argue against that. But it's not a single vector solution. There's no one single thing that any of us can say about that situation in Bridge City, Louisiana, or others that's going to solve it. It's systemic. It's multidimensional. There are a variety of variables in play. Uh, some are impacted by what you do or what you say as a society, as a government, as educators, as leaders, as mentors. We've got a lot to do to make that piece better. But one thing we cannot do, I love your point, Dr. K, is give up on our young people. We cannot be of the mindset that you can incarcerate your way out of this problem or rest your way out of this problem. We have to find ways to engage. I love your point earlier. You've got to communicate. You have to find to reach them. If not, it's our fault, not theirs. And, and, and I think we, we stand, I think, to suffer the consequences as a, as a civilized society if we don't do better. But as a civilized society, I'm going to be on the other side of that, <laughs> Dr. Bailey. As a civilized society, I don't want two juveniles who just escaped from someplace to come to my neighborhood and wreak havoc. I want them away from my family because I go to work every day. I'm you know, paying taxes. I don't want that in my neighborhood. And no one should want that in their neighborhood. So does, there has to be some type of punishment to fit the crime. You're right. And, and I, it's hard to have a, a long discussion about it. I, know, I, we, I, have we have time, right? I, I, I think 100% I right. And I, I want my, my house to be safe. But I also don't want a guy who um, is at the bank and he's stealing all my money with an ink pen either. So the reality is I think that there's any number of entities in our society where mm. people violate the rules of normative human behavior violate the laws of society, and, and we disproportionately adverse respond to some groups worse than others uh, that may have a implication based on demographics. I think that's a piece that younger and younger people see, they're aware of it. I think very often they're responding adversely against it. I don't agree that, that being violent towards somebody else is a normative response to somebody having been unfair toward you, but I can say that at the high level, at the highest level of government and a- academia, We've got to at least acknowledge those issues because they're real and they're part of why the problem is so systemic and why we can't seem to fix it. One data point I like to say when I, I give this lecture, I gave Grand Rounds yesterday, LSU, and I'm giving it to Austin next week on the same point. But the five cities in the country with the highest rates of gun violence have been the same for the last 20 years. I got a mm-hmm. flash on in 2002. It was Baltimore and St. Louis and Memphis and New Orleans and the like. And in 2020, it's the exact same. So we're not changing what we're putting into people the people change, because different people are 20 years old now than 20 years ago, is what we need to do differently. The so-called political determinants of health is our new term now yes. to change, I think, the outcomes we're going to get from our young people. Dr. Jesse, I want you, uh, as you, you know, because you have this military experience, what has the military, in terms of dealing with trauma and war, been able to lend to the civilian practice of trying to save lives? I know there's a lot of work in that area, and I want to give you an opportunity to to say that because, you know, you you dedicate a lot of your surgical career in both areas. And that's that's no uh, small thing to have accomplished in terms of being able in the civilian practice and in the military. And there's things that we do learn about uh, military wartime that we've been able to affect changes for better outcomes on the civilian side. You know, I think if you compare historically times of war, times of war uh, on the back end have always increased medical innovation on the civilian side, you know, so simple things. If I had to say the the 20 years we spent in Afghanistan, 
you know, what are, are the things we did from a military side that, you know, translated to a civilian side is simple things, right? Like you couldn't go in theater without at least having a tourniquet, mm. right? It's a simple mm-hmm. solution. You have a formal tourniquet, you tie something around somebody's arms when they're bleeding, you know, and the American College of Surgeons and took that and made it a formal program. If you've ever heard of Stop the Bleed, you know, mm. Stop the Bleed is a formal program of how to, you know, apply tourniquets, stop, you know, hold pressure to stop the bleeding, which mm-hmm. is sort of a, a military sort of uh, transition to civilian, but it's also, you know, also came out of tragedy when, you know, the bombing of the Boston Marathon mm-hmm. happened and, mm-hmm. you know, hemorrhage and, and exsanguination is the number one, you know, preventable death. If we can just teach people how to put on a tourniquet, hold pressure and stop the bleeding, you know, that's one thing that's, that's translated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a formal program. We teach stop the bleed to fifth graders and anyone there stop the bleeds on the walls just like their defibrillators and mm-hmm. so that you know how to do it which i think is exceptionally important because in the era of you know you can go any we live in an era when you really think about it we live in an era that you can go anywhere in this country and take the risk of being shot to death in and some that's mass shooting isn't that right? like, that you can't even doesn't go to matter the there's no place there's no place that is off limits place mm-hmm. of worship grocery store, school, going to, a, you know, the mall, it doesn't matter, right? And so by default, we've given or attempt to give the masses the tools for at least at least that. There's a whole sort of other things like when you're deployed to a, a austere environment and somebody's injured and you might not have, you know, readily available blood products, right? Mm-hmm. And so every place has a, has a, a plan to do a walking blood bank. And so, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's blood type on, on the base. So if you can just get it directly from one person and put it in somebody else. You know, we, we've learned uh, the one-to-one-to-one resuscitation, how to give people fluids back. We've learned that, you know, whole blood instead of components, uh, you give all the blood without separating out the components, people respond better and have, you know, better mm-hmm. outcomes. You know, I think one of the things we've done, too, in the military and paid a lot of attention to, and this is completely in Dr. Bailey's lane, is, you know, we've taken a real hard look because, you know, in the beginning of the war, it was, you know, we're sending people on deployments. The cycle was short. You go for six months, you come back for a month, you go back for six months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people came back and they were mentally affected from that. And Mm -hmm. back then we would say, oh, you just need to get over it. PTSD is not a thing. What are you talking about? Just go out, go back to war, don't be weak. And then because you lack recognition that some of that was happening, these guys were coming back from deployment and they were hurting their wives, their loved ones, just random people because they had all this aggression and PTSD that they didn't know how to manage it. Mm-hmm. And when they talked to somebody about it, they were being told, well, you're soft. quote unquote." Mm-hmm. So I think the military has done a very good job about you know, screening for PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Right now, if you come back from a deployment in theater, every deployment I came back from, I didn't go straight from deployment to home. I spent mm-hmm. a week or two somewhere else talking oh. about some mental health issues, sort of decompressing, trying mm-hmm. to make sure you weren't, weren't going to go back stateside and hurt somebody, hurt yourself. So I think we've the military has paid a lot more attention to sort of that type stuff. And I think the the mental of all the things, I actually mm-hmm. think the mental health effects of any form of violence is very important because I can, you know, you get shot, you get shot in the heart, 
I fix your heart, you live, and mm-hmm. that's it. But I don't have to live with the effects of you getting shot, why you got shot, thinking about getting shot, the nightmares, how that mm-hmm. affects the rest of your life. I don't do that. But somebody needs to do that, and somebody needs to pay attention to that so that mm-hmm. that person doesn't end up addicted, depressed, violent themselves, you know, can live a, as much of a normal, healthy life as they can. I want, uh, you know, you said one word and I know we're coming close to that end. And Dr. Bailey, I want to see, he said addicted uh, again, because sometimes after these gunshot tragedies or any tragedy in life, people can turn to drugs and you found a correlation between gun violence and drug usage. So I'll let you tell us about that before we leave. We have so much to talk about. We'll also have to have a part three. So I do want to talk about just a little bit about the association of those two that's fueling our gun violence, please. Absolutely. And I like to have a part three because the more I get on these shows with you, uh, Dr. K and your, your, your group, I, I learned a great deal. Uh, before I get to the, the uh, SUD piece, I'd love to just follow up on a point that Ellie made. Again, I think he, he's a point in our message. This issue about if you're around violence, it tends to make you more inclined to accept the construct of violence. Many people are not aware that in most constructs, about a third to 40% of the perpetrators of domestic violence are Leos, law enforcement officers. And, and many of them are, are good quality people and the like, and, and they're not out there, you think, you know, doing adverse issues, some notwithstanding. But the reality is being around violence a lot, even when you're not the perpetrator of it, or if you're not the one who um, uh, gets blamed for it, or even who's penalized for it, uh, acculturates you to a violent medium and how you engage. If we see that with law enforcement officers who've been educated and trained and retrained, if you will, imagine the, the regular person without that level of training or engagement, why for them being around violence, hearing gunshot wounds and going to school and somebody in your school died via gunshot wound during that, that past year, whatever. some of the high schools in New Orleans, one or two kids died during that senior year before they could even finish, you know, the, the finish high school. Clearly, is a culturation of violence is a huge issue for us in all societies. I think there was also stated earlier, you can have this any place, in every state, urban and rural areas, all demographics, or rich and poor. That big violent issue in Chicago the other day was in Highland Park, a very well-to-do area, and then there was an issue, I think, of a mass shooting. So clearly, we've got to get our hands around that and understand, because what very often prevents us from managing it well is all of the, um, the misnomer, the so-called fake news, if you will, uh, people get the wrong message out and craft a narrative that's not based on the facts or the empirical data. That's why I like shows like this one, over oh, we got to kind of tell it, they call it straight no chaser. I'd also say that issue of SUD uh, is timely uh, for any number of reasons going back a century, not just a few decades or so. We've been very aware that stress uh, will bust a pipe, you say in, 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 in layperson's terms, but very often people try to so-called self-medicate with substance abusing toxic substances, uh, some illegal, nicotine and alcohol, some are illegal in some places, marijuana, other illegal every place, cocaine and whatever. Some are uh, over-the-counter, excuse me, they are uh, prescribed, amphetamines and opioids for pain. But the reality is, all, in my estimation, can lead to SUD or substance use disorders or substance dependence. We need substances to function. You need one, an upper to get you up in the morning and a sleeper or a downer to go to sleep at night. You want to manage your anxiety for your panic attacks, whether it's alcohol or something else. So the reality is, this is absolutely a pox, I think, on my house and in our area as, as medical professionals and as psychiatrists. I think we do see and understand very clearly that some people are more at risk or predisposed. There's some vulnerabilities, I think, psychologically, maybe due to family genetics and a generic predisposition, and or due to how they've been socialized. If you're in a community where people very often reach out to, for self-medication versus or going to a doctor 
or a primary care doctor or psychiatrist for medications to manage that concern. Huge issues, I think, are a rather force and reasons why we might see higher rates of SUD or substance use disorders or dependence addiction, if you will, in some communities versus others. I'd also say that we definitely see them highest in areas where people, A, are exposed to violence as perpetrators or victims, and B, where you don't get immediate response. So the other thing I like about the comments that only made about the military is they've been very effective at, I think, funding financially early intervention strategies. We mentioned trouble recovery with Ocarajo in New Orleans. That's what I really want to do in, in my term as a chair here. And I think that's a capable comment about me being the first African chair and the like, if you will. But I want to do some things that I think, based on my experience, I should appreciate and where I should direct my resources, my 78 psychiatrists, psychologists in my department, to provide the kind of care and early interventional strategies for communities of need. Now, just when you're in the emergency room, if you're in outpatient settings, if you're in inpatient settings and family is there and they've really struggled with a person who's had cardiac illness for a long period of time, other issues that I think also come into play, but we should be proactive in our approaches. We should be, I think, forward thinking and, and early interveners and say we know we have individuals around us who are at highest risk of adverse outcomes up to and including, at times, violence. This has just been amazing. <laughs> we are going to have to have a part three. So, uh, Thank you, Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey. He is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at LSU. We also have Dr. Elliot Jesse. And I want to get the name of your hospital. You are medical director. Uh, you're captain of the United States Navy. That's one thing. And then you serve as the medical director of, is it SICU? Yeah, I'm the um, medical director for the SICU and the chief of trauma for Walter Reed. Awesome. Thank you so much, both of you. Dr. K, I'm taking it away. I'm Tamara G. Don't forget, you can always follow Dr. K and all of this that we're talking about at myuzima.org. That's myuzima, U-Z-I-M-A dot org. Dr. K. I want to thank both of you for coming on to the show. Look for my PSA that I've created on gun violence up on YouTube. I'm a little technically challenged, so I'm not going to pull it up right now, but it will be after this airs. And uh, I will also tag you all when I play it. It's been well received and well appreciated and, and uh, received even by uh, different age groups. So I appreciate that. When I say different age group, my test is uh, Jabril, my nephew, who's 21. So <laughs> he likes it. And he says right. he got something out of the message. But we are having to create uh, lots of uh, new messages for this generation and for not even the, what do you call the millennials, the Generation Zs. We've got to find a way so that we can preserve life and stop these tragic deaths that are, are happen, happening all the time. A part three definitely is needed um, because we definitely have a, a conversation about intimate partner violence that we need to explore, especially in light of such as with women health all the way around. But I want to thank two black men, two esteemed professors and academicians and clinicians in medicine for stopping and talking to us. And I, I know that this will be inspiring to some uh, little young black man out there. And we do have the challenge of trying to get young black men in college and young black men in medical school. So I want to thank you for, for even just talking because that's going to help with that issue as well. So have a great day, Dr. Bailey. Sorry during your uh, family reunion to interrupt, but we, we appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Jesse. Enjoy. You're very welcome. You guys have a good evening. Thank, thank you, you very much. Enjoy it. Bye-bye. What did Dr. say?